I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. We have made it through two games of the 2022 NBA Finals. So today we're going to talk about Game 2. We might even go back and reminisce about Game 1. We might forecast forward to Game 3. Who knows? I don't know. Cody, how are you feeling after the two games in the Bay Area? The series has swung back to the other coast all the way to Beantown. What is on your mind? Uh, there's a few things that are on my mind. First of all, I'm feeling, I think last episode, I I said Warriors and Six. I'm going to double down on something later in the episode, maybe. Maybe I'll end with that, but uh, let's just say I'm feeling pretty good about my Warriors and Six prediction. So after two games, you're feeling like this series is kind of unfolding the way you expected. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not expecting like these enormous quarter explosions. I never go into a game being like, you know what? I bet you one team's going to outscore the other one by like 25. Like that's going to be something I expect. <laughs> but the the outcome, I, I don't know. I feel like the, the Warriors are going to nab the majority of the next couple games. I, I mean, it's it's an interesting question. Like two games in one location, they split. If you thought the teams were pretty close, you know, are you feeling better about one of the teams or the other. I think Golden State clearly needs, at some point in the series, a little bit more from Klay Thompson. Um, she was, I think, four for 19 in game two and, and just just looked kind of discombobulated all night. You know, the shooting is one thing, but, um, you know, you didn't really feel his presence anywhere else in the game. So if he's out there and he's four for 19, that's not good. Jordan Poole had a little burst, but I still think of, you know, is Jordan Poole going to be able to find a way to contribute positively on offense in the, you know, I don't know, what is he going to play, 23 to 27 minutes a game, something like that. I thought Gary Payton coming back was a really big deal. I mentioned this in the video on game two, but to have Payton and Draymond and their defensive versatility and then have Peyton be able to come into these lineups with Curry and Thompson. I mean, you can play him with Looney, Draymond out there at the same time with Peyton, and you get all this defensive juice. You can go kind of small ball. You can put Wiggins in the lineup, Draymond at center. Uh, I, I thought that was actually a big win for the Warriors coming out of game two. So going back to Clay Thompson for a second, I know a lot of the discourse is about a shooting, and it probably should be. Like, on a lot of different levels, it probably should be. But I don't know about you, I walked away feeling pretty good defensively about him on a couple of levels. I thought he made a couple of nice plays. He, of course, had the really nice rim contest against uh, Jalen Brown on a drive. But I think more so is later on in the game, Kerr was able to run a pretty small lineup with Draymond at the 5 and Clay at the 4. And there were a couple times where I think the announcers were like, Horford gets on Thompson in the post and they're like, oh, this is a clear mismatch. And I'm watching and I'm like, is this? Is this a clear mm. mismatch? I think this is actually one of Clay's strengths. I think he's a pretty strong, he's he's a pretty strong positionally sound defender, and that's the kind of place I'd want to see him. So defensively, I'm like, I'm I'm liking what I'm seeing from Clay so far. Was Gary Payton 
on the court in that lineup. Oh yeah, oh yeah. He so was, I'm gonna have to see. So so he was really the center, and Draymond was the four, and Clay was the three. <laughs> in an is- interesting matchup. Um, if you haven't seen the video on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel on Game Two, the big kind of tactical adjustment from Game One to Game Two was they put Draymond on Jalen Brown. But I think that that in conjunction with Peyton being out there, so Peyton could guard Tatum on a lot of possessions. And then, you know, Curry can generally hold his own. Um, Wiggins, obviously, is a very good man defender. The thing I think we really want to jump into today is Boston's offense and creating advantages. Because one of the subtle things in game two is there just weren't many breakdowns. The Warriors, the way they defend, constantly kind of cheating and overloading the side and pre-rotating, they want to funnel you into help. So it's not like they're going to put guys on an island all the time. But when you're on an island and you have to defend in space, and the advantage is kind of like that, especially pick and roll, there might be a little slide over pre-rotation gap, you know, slide into the gap or something. But isolation and pick and roll, if you can't create an advantage because Wiggins, Draymond, Gary Payton, they all stay in front of you and they basically are like, we don't need a lot of extra help. That is the difference between what is it, 21 open three-pointers, open-ish three-pointers from Derek White, Al Horford, Marcus Smart, those role players who, who can those threes, Grant Williams in the corner in past series, those shots come from that stuff upstream. And if the Warriors take that away by keeping you in front, preventing you from creating an advantage, that slows the Boston offense down now. And I want to see in game three how Ime Udoka, Tatum, Brown, Smart, even Horford how they adjust to get back to trying to create some of those advantages earlier in the possession where it's like, then we can make our skip pass, then we can kick, make extra passes, and get our role players open shots or attack closeouts. So I had a really interesting moment in this last game where the Celtics were up 22-13, to and I wrote down in my notes, Golden State clearly looks like the better team right now. When they were up 22-13, Boston was up 22-13. And I felt like a big part of it was the process. And I thought that Boston came out, Jalen Brown, as you noted in your video, comes out and hits a couple of really big threes. Jason Tatum hits a couple of threes in that first half. But Warriors were just Warriorsing. The best way I could think about it, here, here is my comparison. I've been thinking that Boston's offense almost looks a little simplistic, right? In the sense that, like, if we're doing a movie comparison, Boston's offense is like a Marvel movie, and Golden State's offense is like, uh, oh man, what's the name of it? The one that came out, everything, everywhere, all at once. Like, it's one of those kinds of movies that you see it and you're like, I think it's going to take us years from now to fully understand and appreciate just how great this gem is. Whereas like the Marvel movie, whereas Boston's offense, you can like point to these things and be like, ah, horn set, ah, hammer set, ah, motion strong. I know those things. But like when they get to them, they're not actually creating advantages for themselves. They just get the ball at the top of the key and it's like, all right, now we're going to go into a ball screen. Now we're going to isolate. And I just, I don't see them having to having any of these advantages besides being able to create them one-on-one, whereas the Warriors are just, I don't know, exhausting the Celtics with their constant movement. I'm sure no one is going to be upset or offended that you compared the, the simplistic Marvel movies to the uh, to the basic horn set. I don't know who's going to be more offended by that, the Marvel movie fans or sort of X's and O's NBA guys who are like, how how dare you reduce horns? You don't know you don't know the adaptability of horns. You can run anything out of horns, Cody. You could run pick and roll left or pick and roll right. 
I don't know if you know that. Um, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's like, oh, we can isolate out of this. Whereas the other one, it's like, I might cut. We might cut at the same time. Who knows? Maybe we'll run into each other and swing arms across each other into a multiverse, and it's going to be a great time. So that's what I'm feeling right now. Yeah, and I think we'll focus a lot on on the Celtics offense. Um, before we do, one of the things we talked about in the last you know couple episodes in the in the preview with Dave Dufour and Jay Kyle Mann last week was the golden the the, the rock meeting the the hard the, what is, wait hold on I'm completely botching this expression um, <laughs> an immovable object. What is this expression? Meets an unstoppable force? Yes, thank you. Yes. That's exactly... I was like, a rock that's immovable? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, so, basically, you have the Warriors offense, and you have this this great hard-to-guard offense, and then you have the Celtics defense. And I think the Warriors coming out of the first two games have had wins on offense on kind of both key fronts of the battle. The first is the motion. Celtics do a great job switching at times off the ball because they're a defense that's built that up into their DNA for the last six months. So there are a handful of possessions. If we were going to pull out the film and put them up right now magically on the on the radio, um, or if this turns into a YouTube segment or something, we would have clips of the most beautiful off-ball switches you will ever see on the Warriors slipping screens, you know, Clay and Steph running together, and one of them kind of juts out around the screen. And the, No, the Celtics, when they get it right, it is picture perfect. There's zero advantage created. But the other parts of that, the rest of the time, are like, you don't want Al Horford chasing Clay Thompson around screens, and that creates a problem. You don't want Rob Williams, I have it in the video, Rob Williams and Jalen Brown. Jalen's been a good chaser, and that's been a win, but you don't want to tax both those guys at the same time to make a decision, you know, three, four, five moments or beats later in the possession when they're tired. So Curry comes across the lane, and Rob and Jalen are like, ah, we gotta, we gotta, we got to cut to Curry, and boom, somebody's wide open on the backside for a layup. It hasn't been a disaster because they're such a good defense, but I feel like Golden State's had some wins there that the Celtics haven't completely combated. And then the other big front that I talk about in the video is the pick-and-roll game. And we mentioned it in Game 1, even though Golden State lost, we spend a lot of time on the success of that pick-and-roll. Depending on how you slice those numbers again, same hand tracking I used from the last episode, we're still at like 120, I think 124, 125 offensive rating on Curry's pick and roll possessions um, in the first two games of this series. And I haven't seen anything yet. I haven't even seen a glimpse of something tactically where you could be like, oh, that's going to be the antidote for Boston. Instead, Boston's reacted, it seems, by pulling one of their bigs off the floor and playing more lineups with only Horford or only Rob Williams and kind of trying to adapt with the small ball lineup to handle some of the, the issues that Curry creates because... We've talked about it before. Curry has just been so good in this postseason with patience and decision-making, regardless of what you drop, that's a problem. You hedge, that's a problem. You trap, that's a problem. He'll string you out. He'll keep the dribble alive. I included one play in the video, which is another subtle thing, but comes off the, comes off the pick and roll, comes right around the screen. I think Jalen Brown is the defender who stunts at him, and he just puts it right back between his legs, starts over, and then gives... Al Horford, the okie doke, like we're going to the basket. Nope, step back three. And a lot of players pick up their dribble when they feel that traffic. A lot of players aren't comfortable stringing it out 
and Curry's just been fantastic at that for the last few months. So those were the two big things for me on that side of the ball where it feels like Golden State has had success and Boston hasn't really found an answer yet. That one play that you're referencing with Curry cutting through and then Rob and and Brown botching the switch, what's actually really nice is if you go back and watch it right before that, Smart's on on Curry, and when he cuts in, Smart and Rob actually execute a really nice switch. Like, Rob Williams Williams switches on to Curry, and that's one of those, like, first moments where you're like, wow, the Celtics are really engaged with this. This is an awesome. But then, the inevitability, the impossibility of guarding this Warriors uh, offense. They're just going to keep doing it over and over until you make a mistake and you're going to tax all of these other players like you just said and they're going to force mistakes like we saw right after that with Rob and, and, and Brown then. so And then back to your point about the pick and roll. This just keeps going back to me You've referenced a few times in your videos that, that Curry's passing seems to be the main improvement. To me, I can't get over his handle. I just think his handle looks so unbelievably tight. And I don't have a specific stat for that. And I think someone in your Discord cited some kind of like uh, turnover percentage that's been super low for him throughout the playoffs. But if- Are they tracking dribbles? Are they tracking number of picked up dribbles or something? That's They'll get into that in the Discord. Uh, yeah, keep going. You know what? I, I don't want to get that much into the sauce there. I just want to smell what's simmering off and I don't want to dive. I don't want to dive into it completely you know (laughs) so with this improved handle you can't switch on him you can't send like al horford you can't send rob williams against him in the switch because he just cooks then so i i don't know like like you brought up i think the last episode the celtics team is just so much better and more built to guard someone that scores in the same way as Giannis or jimmy butler and someone might like put up a, a comparison and be like cody you are nuts look at how how much better Giannis scored look at how much better butler scored but like look at the team scoring like this Warriors team is just trucking along when Curry is on the court right now. So, I, I don't know. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the Deal. deal. Listen to the deal. Listen to the deal on Spotify. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Uh, Interestingly enough, the numbers are not better. Um, Now, it's only two games, and I think this will iron out. Regardless of what happens in the series, I think it'll iron out. And then, of course, there's the possibility that the Celtics find sort of a silver bullet and are able to slow down the offense in the next few games. But right now, Curry's scoring 34 points per 75, plus 6% true shooting in the series. And his offensive rating on the court is 121. And I don't think the Celtics can survive and win a series with Golden State's offense being that successful. Um, you know, the other the other big names for Golden State, when, when Draymond Green's on the court, it's 115. When Clay Thompson's on the court, it's 107. When Jordan Poole's on the court, it's 100. But when Curry's out there, 121 offensive rating. So 
the those numbers are well ahead of what we saw from Giannis in Milwaukee uh, and Jimmy Butler in Miami in the earlier series against the Celtics. Giannis in Milwaukee, he was 32 points per 75, so fewer points, and minus 3% true shooting. So, of course, we talked about it throughout that series, how it was a, a struggle for him given the offensive setting. But the offensive rating for the Bucs when he was on the floor was 105. So again, we're, the difference between like 105 and 121 or something like that, that's the big thing for me. Jimmy Butler, throughout the course of his series, he had a couple horrible games. He had a couple monster games, finishes at 27 points per 75 plus 3%. So again, Curry's numbers are way better. But his offensive rating or the Heat offensive rating when he was on the floor, 107. So that's the, I, I think the takeaway is they got to find a way to take just one of those things, like take away the motion element or take away the pick and roll element. But they have to bring that down, I think, if they're going to really... It's not impossible for them to win the series, but I think have a really good chance to win the series. I'm going to apologize to Stephen Curry right now. Like, here's the cognitive bias I was thinking. I'm like, how how is this possible? But here's the thing. Did Curry play in the fourth quarter of game two? No, he didn't. So when you don't play as many minutes... Like, it doesn't stand out as to, like, compared to a player that plays all 48 minutes and is battling and is hyper-physical and scoring, you're like, oh, that's a real gutted-out performance. <laughs> it's a real winner of the playoffs. And then Curry, like, sits after, tw- I don't know, 28 minutes. Because, Too dominant. Yeah, yeah. it's... Man, this is, I apologize. This is always, this is always driven me nuts that... Um, and, and we talked about it recently, and I, I have a Patreon-only podcast about the um, best... NBA Finals performance is really redoing the Finals MVP, and I talk about it in this. And I think I think I'll release that at some point um, in the summer when the season's over to the public. But the idea that I'm talking about is that when you look at a small sample series, it's hard to evaluate. It's hard to kind of figure out what one good game means, what one bad game means. But I have never been on board, Cody, with. We dominated and played super well, and I had this awesome game. But because we were up by thirty my final stat line was like, quote unquote, only 30 points in three quarters. And then so at the end of the series, people want to really lean into the per game average. And they're like, oh, you see average like four fewer points per game. And that has to count for something because your minutes and, you know, uh, are related to your production. If you're not on the court, you can't have per minute impact. I get it. But the context sometimes is just like it, I I had to, we have to stop and point that out. It drives me crazy when people get punished for being too good in a short period of time in a playoff series. And I'll totally own that. I think you and I off mic played a game where you're like, there were four players that earned the top 10 BPM in a single season. And it took me like 30 players before I got to Curry. Like I didn't even guess Curry because I'm like, oh, he hasn't had a great statistical like single playoff series. Yeah, a a box score single player series. You're like, no, actually, he was like plus 20 in the series. I'm like, oh, I don't remember that at all. He's had some monster conference finals. And again, those conference finals have been in dominant performances and people kind of uh, it, it diminishes your points per game sometimes. And then because you're so dominant, it diminishes this sort of, you said it like there's a bias toward it was a set. It was a seven game I don't want to try to do the accent you did. It was much grittier than what I'm coming up with, but it was like, it was a seven game hard out series. Um, that accent anyway. is called. There's two more days of school left and I'm done. <laughs> where where were we? Let's let's talk about the Celtics on offense. Um, since we've been talking about numbers for a change on this podcast, <laughs> the Celtics' offensive numbers 
I, I've said coming into the series, they're always higher than you think. The the t- especially with Tatum out there, the the starting core and things, um, and that's been consistent for months. Their offense, I think, after February first, was the best offense in the league by offensive efficiency, by offensive rating, and in the playoffs, the numbers have been good. But in the first two games in, uh, I almost said Oakland, my goodness, in San Francisco, I mean, the, in the shiny, the shiny silvering uh, Chase Center. Um, Offensive rating for the Celtics when Tatum's on the floor is 107, and you get a lot of numbers like that from the guys, 109, 106, things like that. Again, two games, small sample, it'll change, not a huge deal, but if you're the Celtics coming into game three, I think the big question for me is how can we tactically create better shots against the Warriors' defense of that intensity and that kind of versatility, and now you've got Draymond and Peyton out. I mean, it looks like I wouldn't be surprised if it's if it's working and if it's a tight defensive game. We see like a 30-something minute game from Gary Payton the second in one of these, especially if it gets, oh, Cody, I'm so excited. If it gets, if we just get down to brass tacks and we just have like game four of the finals going into overtime, game five, like coming down to the last five minutes back and forth, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, Celtics on offense, what do you think? Their offense, from what I'm seeing, it, it seems like a lot of almost searching for mismatch hunting, but it's not necessarily mismatch hunting. Like, pretty much every possession they get, like, maybe they'll end up with Tatum in the mid post with Curry or Poole switched onto him. Or maybe they get Brown out on the perimeter with, like, Von Looney on him. But there's never really a time when I feel like they're getting the ball in an advantageous moving position. Like, they'll finish their action, and then all of a sudden the ball stops on the player, and then they're going to make a move. Whereas, like, comparing that to how the Warriors are playing offense, it feels like the final pass that's made is either hitting someone in stride, hitting them in an open shot, because I think think where the Celtics excel on offense is that they have a lot of really good play connectors. Guys like Derek White right? Derek White's really good. Derek White, Marcus Smart, Al Horford, guys that on the secondary tertiary attack can get it. A low viscous player. They're going to really quickly move the ball. Uh, They can maybe get a couple dribbles in, do the whole drive and kick game, but they don't, it doesn't feel like they're ever getting that first domino to the fall. They're never diving into the waterfall at first. It just kind of like stops and it's like, all right, Tatum, time to make a tough shot. And Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, these guys are really good at tough shot making. Like Jalen Brown's a really good tough shot maker, but it's, it's just not going to be enough against this Warriors team. So whatever adjustments they do, I think they're, they're going to have to somehow figure out a way to knock down that first domino in a more efficient way for them. Well, I mean, you mentioned Looney. He's held up great in basically all switch situations, um, especially against whether it's one of the Jays, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. He, he's had an excellent series. Uh, you know, I think this sticks to our theme of wondering what's coming with the Celtics offense. And again, I'm not going to try to guess them, but I am fairly certain the next video on Game 3 is going to be about Ime Yudoka's adjustments. I think they're going to have some tactical adjustments, whether it's on both sides or just offense, to try to help. Because when you have Looney able to um, defend any of these switches or things like that, when you have Gary Payton, the second, who's for the most part switch pre you're not going to like try to try to get Tate I mean he's Tatum Tatum's already guarded by Gary Payton the second to start the possession um you have Draymond Green out there it's just a lot of defensive juice to try to say hey we're gonna mismatch hunt we're gonna look for some advantage in the 
high post, the mid post, or on the outside, pull it out and try to take. That's what they've done with Looney a couple times, and he's held up very well. I mean, we have. I feel like we're talking about this dynamic, and we barely mentioned Andrew Wiggins. And Andrew Wiggins is one of the, at this point, he's probably one of the best big wing on ball defenders in the entire NBA. Um, that's the that's the question mark for me. I I, I don't know. What do you, who else do you think can kind of move this needle? Is it smart? Does smart need to be able to, you know, beat his man off the dribble or create just that little extra uh, moment, if you will, to paraphrase Phil Jackson coming off the pick and roll? Does somebody have to come out and hit a couple threes to start the game to soften up the Warriors? I did not think Golden State, we talked about it the other day, I didn't really think they came out of their defensive concepts that much. I think they said, hey, if you guys are going to hit all your threes, fantastic. The change they did make was upping their intensity, upping their ball pressure, maybe borrowing a little bit from what Miami did to them, and then just saying, we know when we're in a situation where we have a a small rotation or partial help, we need to be buttoned up on our closeouts. We're not going to give these guys wide open shots anymore. You may get shots. Derek White, Marcus Smart, Al Horford, 15 to 21 from three in game one. You may get some threes on our closeouts, but I even called out a few in the video like, the difference between wide open, I'm going to have a cup of coffee and relax, and Draymond Green coming at you, one of the greatest closeout guys in the history of the league, basically, it's a big difference on your percentages. And I thought that was sort of what Golden State got so much better, what they finally tuned in game two. I think in the first game, I said that Draymond had a pretty good defensive game. But like this game reminded me like what a good Draymond Green defensive game was and I think that the specific play you're talking about was it was it Derek White shooting in the corner do you remember if it was Derek White that he was closing out on uh there was a couple that I I was thinking of they were both on Jalen Brown and then I think he has one on Derek White that isn't in the video I want to say um but yeah he was flying around the one so like just the one where he travels (laughs) no what maybe maybe (laughs) there's one where Derek there's one where Derek White travels in the video I erroneously said uh, he stepped out of bounds. It wouldn't be a thinking basketball video no. if I didn't misdescribe a, a play. Is that the one you're thinking of? The Peyton stumbling play? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's incredible that was amazing. To me. That was absolutely amazing. And then, so to put this in perspective, Peyton immediately got up and basically thanked. He's like, how did you do that? He's like, that was amazing. You covered, you covered me where that probably should have been my rotation, but I slipped. Draymond sees him slip out of the corner of his eye and then just hightails it over there. And that's what I'm talking about, Cody. Like, White can shoot that shot sometimes with the closeout coming at him. Um, We see it with Smart. You see it with Al Horford. You can shoot it, but it's a different thing over and over again when you have that guy closing out on you who sometimes is going to block your shot, Sometimes it's going to get up in your airspace and make you uncomfortable. I mean, the one in the video I had from Jalen Brown, I think he might have blocked that if Brown doesn't adjust it at the last second. And oh, by the way, the adjustment led to an air ball. So yeah, I think it's a big deal. I, I, I really can't get over that play. Like, I just, I love these impossible defensive plays where, you know, you, like Gary Payton's a very good defensive player. We talked about him a lot in that defensive podcast. And I think we talked about him a lot. We probably could have talked about him more because we could never stop talking about the gauntlet. But like, you're like, all right, the gauntlet's covering the corner. I don't need to do my thing. He sees him stumble and just teleports. Like, it's that teleportation that just shocks me. And, and it sounds really reductive, but like great defensive players just make impossible defensive plays. And I, man, I, Draymond Green is just... 
I, I don't know who's more fun to watch, honestly. Great Draymond Green on defense or Steph Curry on offense. The answer is probably Steph Curry, but I want Draymond Green to be in the conversation. <laughs> uh, another thing related to this is the turnovers for the Celtics. I alluded to the Miami series. We talked about the loose handle a lot. The Warriors were much more physical. There were a couple plays that certainly could have been called fouls. By, by the way, can I take a time out to rant about this? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. But people are very confused. One of the reasons, I think there's two things to discuss with officiating. One is meta-officiating. One is the larger concept of what is a foul, what isn't a foul, what are we going to allow, things like that. I'm generally more interested in those things for the state of the league. Then there's the nitty-gritty of officiating. I think we mentioned it after game one, like Curry comes down the lane, he gets hit on the arm, and they miss the foul call. You're going to have 5, 10, 15 of those a game. And for the most part, what you want is you want only a few errors on each side. So, you know, one team isn't like plus 12 free throws or something from erroneous officials or plus 15 points from erroneous officials. You always want it to kind of be a couple points for one team one way, a couple points for the other. If it's perfectly even, they can have games like that. But in this case, in videos that I put out, especially Cody, like, There are going to be, every video has numerous moving screens that to me is a meta conversation about the concept of a moving screen. Every video has travels. And sometimes I'll poke fun at them if they're hilarious or ridiculous. But for the most part, you know, you're allowed to pick up your pivot foot now. Sometimes you're allowed to have two pivot feet before you start dribbling. Oftentimes with the gather step, you have guys taking three steps because they're cheating the gather step. I I can't stop the point of every video to point out the three or four times in a video that there's uh, a travel, the three or four times in a video that there's, or the 10 times in a video, there's a moving screen. Um, And sometimes touch fouls. Like if there's obvious fouls and it impacts the play, then yes. So Celtics fans were extremely upset about the officiating. Here's the thing. In big games, sometimes one team gets a better whistle. I don't know about you, Cody. I I thought the Celtics had a much worse whistle I thought the Warriors had a very favorable whistle in the second game. Did you have the same impression? Yeah, maybe in the first half or so. I I don't know if it carried through the entire game, though. Yeah, but specifically, there's, you know, some plays with Draymond Green, um, you know, where he's getting away with a little hook or a hold or a moving screen or thing. Like, it's one of those games he could have had eight fouls. Okay, so... It was one of those games. The the all-time moving screen. I'm pretty sure he, like, collects two Celtics and, like, shoves them into his screen. That was was pretty egregious. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, he well, he pushes the play. The play you're talking about is in the video. He pushes Derek White. Um, That's my rant about the officials. We got on that for something a little more relevant, which is each crew in each game will change how they call a game. Obviously, sometimes it's a little looser. Sometimes it's a little tighter. The ball pressure from Golden State. There's another play in the video where uh, Green swipes down on Jalen Brown and hits him in the leg. Can you call a foul on that? Sure. It's, do I care about that as a player? If someone erroneously has their hand go off my leg? Usually not. It's not that big of a deal to me. Um, but it's going to be called a foul a lot. That kind of ball pressure, reaching, slapping, hitting, crowding, all that kind of stuff. If you get an officiating crew that has a tighter whistle on that, I think that favors the Celtics here. Because that ball pressure, especially on Tatum and Brown, when they're working in their kind of sweet spots on the court, right? Tatum, top of the key, trying to make a quick move. Brown, elbow, paint, get into his uh, tough shot making that you alluded to earlier. 
that could be a thing to me that makes a difference. And again, that's just part of the game where one game it might be tighter, one game it might be looser. You might see a crew in game three in Boston if the Warriors bring that same intensity, all of a sudden, boom, three minutes into the game, Draymond Green has two fouls or three fouls or something like that. That's where I think it's kind of strategically relevant for this series and this point about Boston's turnovers. Which I think ties really well back to the initial question that kind of got to this meta discussion, which is what can Boston do differently and what can they do better? And I think it's I think the four players that really stand out to me, I have Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Derek White, Marcus Smart. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, those four players need to play better. Like, that's that's dumb. That's not the argument I'm going to make. I think the two best ball handlers on the team of the, like, main rotation guys are probably Smart and White. And then I think Jason Tatum is a cleaner handle than Jalen Brown. I think ultimately, for Tatum at least, they need to get him in more advantageous positions that aren't just him starting in a standstill because when he's starting in a standstill and the Golden State Warriors are able to go up and crowd them like they like to do when you allow Draymond Green to get into you or Gary Payton to get into you or Andrew Wiggins to get into you before you're even moving your life is just going to be so much more difficult so I think that's got to be the main adjustment is getting somebody especially Tatum because I think Brown Brown is a little bit quicker of a first step. He's got a little little bit more of that juice where he can get into the teeth of the defense. Uh, Smart and White, I think, need a little bit more space to get that creation. And I think Tatum, once he gets moving, he's able to get it. And I think he's a a much better passer than Jalen Brown. But he has to get into that advantageous position before he's able to make those kinds of reads. One question I get all the time is, Ben, how can I break into working in basketball? Or what are the best ways for me to deeper my understanding of the NBA? And my immediate answer is always sports business classroom. That is the good stuff. Two of our Thinking Basketball team members are actually SBC grads. And it's an immersive program that takes place inside Summer League in Las Vegas, where you'll get training in scouting, media, the salary cap, and analytics from industry leaders. Past instructors and guests include Commissioner Adam Silver, Mike D'Antoni, Masai Ujiri, Daryl Morey, Mike Breen, Zach Lowe, and more. This year's session runs from July 10th to 15th in Las Vegas. So if you're interested, check out sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And I have a discount for you. Enter the code THINKINGBASKETBALL at sign up and get $300 off. That's THINKINGBASKETBALL for $300 off. If you're interested, check it out today, sportsbusinessclassroom.com. Yeah, we feel like a broken record on this one, right? <laughs> like, don't be stationary, uh, especially with Tatum. Get get into the actions quickly and get into the actions with a little movement. And the Celtics have done such a great job of that all season. But, I mean, this goes back to, we've talked around it, but just explicitly stating Draymond Green on someone like Jalen Brown, you're able to take away some of those starting actions because all of a sudden this dude is fighting through all the screens. They're, they didn't switch, right? It's not to say they never switched. There were plays where you had a very coordinated, highly communicative switch from um, Draymond onto a secondary defender if Brown's in a position where it needs a switch. But here's the thing. Switching and soft switching sometimes is... Um, uh, lazy, basically. I don't know. I don't know a better. I don't know a better word than that, right? It's just you don't have to do it 
all the time. And so we've seen this trend, especially in the last five years, where switching has become so prevalent in the NBA postseason. You don't always have to give up the switch easily. And so they will switch when needed. But same thing with Gary Payton, like just staying connected and saying like, all right, Tatum, you're going to run some action. But if we take away the screening advantage to start this, then you don't ever get that position where you catch it on the move with a micro advantage. You know, a lot of offenses, the Suns create a lot of micro advantages in their offense. The Celtics like to create micro advantages. It's a subtle thing, but you get a half a step. You get a guy on the move. You get a guy in a semi-closeout, and then you can go to work. And if you have defenders on players off ball that that never takes place, then I think you're describing what you... I mean, I think you see what you're describing. And then as a fan experience... If you're not paying attention to the off ball, that's the possession where you're like, what's going on? They're just, nothing's happening. Why are, why are they doing this offense? There's nine on the shot. Well, it's because they're trying to run something else away from the ball to get some screens, to get that horns. You know, we're, at, we're running horns. We want to cross screen. We want to get Tatum open. We want to then set a, uh, have the big man chase Tatum and set the screen right away. We want to run all these little actions to try to create an edge, but you never create the micro advantage so you don't get the domino effect to create the edge and then the possession stalls. And I think what, when you say the soft switching, I think the best example that pops to mind is, is uh, the, the Clippers playing the, the Dallas Mavericks in the first round a couple of years ago. It's just like all these soft switches. It's like, why, when you have two of the best perimeter defenders, are you just switching everything off of Luca? Like, why don't you just let them, let them, whoever, whoever Luca wants, right? Yeah, exactly. Like don't, yeah. don't let the offense dictate what you're going to be doing. That's uh, a isn't that a great song from a musical? Whatever Luca wants, Luca gets. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, so, Let's move on. Okay, I actually I have a I have a point that I bring up, or a question, or a point. I don't know. It's somewhere in the nexus between a point and a question. So obviously, we could watch game two and be like, a big adjustment is this Draymond Green on Jalen Brown switch right is is draymond green did a very good job of making life miserable for jalen brown but i've also seen the discourse a little bit i've seen some numbers floating around about like here's how stephen curry's been scoring when marcus smart's been defending him in this series and to me that feels much weaker than like being able to point to draymond green being like he's doing a masterful job like i think i literally saw like oh fake defensive player of the year kind of talk and that just that just doesn't sit right with me. Have you seen have you seen any of that kind of talk at all? No, I haven't seen the numbers or or I haven't seen um I try to limit my intake of of sort of toxic basketball thoughts that are just ejected into the digital sphere around this time of year where everyone has to be like yelling as loudly as possible about things they're upset about. So I haven't seen any of this. Okay, so here here are my thoughts on this, right? And this goes back to us talking in circles this episode, is that the Celtics, with their being stagnated a little bit, Draymond Green has a better chance of chasing Jalen Brown around, and then he gets him in these sort of ISO possessions. There's the really, the classic play I think you pointed out in the video where he's just sticking on Jalen Brown. Brown gets to the top of the, uh, to the nail, I think, is pivoting a little bit, and Draymond just contests him into an air ball. And like, you see a lot more of those kinds of possessions where you're like, yep, that's clear defense from him. But Stephen Curry, you can't think of guarding him like you would think of like guarding a traditional 1v1 matchup. Like, it's not like, 
every time that Marcus Smart has defended Steph Curry, that it was just like they rolled the ball out. And it's like, all right, Steph, see if you can score on Smart now. Like, there's all this other movement that's going on. So it completely decontextualizes the ridiculous offense that Curry is in. And so that's, it's just a completely different stat to try and bring up Smart's defensive field goal percentage against against Curry, as opposed to pointing at being like, here's how Draymond Green really made life difficult for Jalen Brown. Mm, yeah, I get, I get nervous when people start pulling up the the defensive field goal percentage against. First of all, in a small sample, that's subject to noise. Heck, in a medium sample, that's subject to noise. That's That can be really noisy. Secondly, to your point, there is a difference between taking someone or a team out of their actions with an adjustment or a matchup, which can happen, and just saying, hey, whenever Marcus Smart like starts as the primary defender or something, um, the shots have, you know, the, the Warriors have been four of 12 or something. And then the other times they're six of 12. I don't, I don't know these numbers. I'm just making it up. But from watching the game, Smart still is going to get screened. Um, and if he's, you know, there's just no way around that. Like as good as he is as getting around screens, to your point, Cody, there's other things happening earlier in the possession where the Celtics are going to switch. And the Celtics have switched. They have not created or, or um, assigned a designated chaser to Curry and said, you're going to run around and chase him no matter what. And I don't think any team really does that. I don't think any team in the last few years has done that. You want multiple guys you can pass them off to. And we talked at the beginning of the episode about how good Boston is at some of these coordinated switches. It would, it would defeat the strength of some of the Celtics' defense to say, hey, smart, you have to stay attached to him for the entire 24 seconds no matter what. That's kind of a recipe for, the, for a disaster. I felt like the Mavs were trying to do that too much, and they didn't have the personnel to do it at all. It's like, we don't want to switch these screens because we don't want mismatches. The Celtics, don't worry about the mismatch because there, there aren't really any against them. They're kind of bulletproof uh, against normal teams. Let's put it that way. So... When, when Curry curls around before coming back to get the ball or coming off a screen, Smart may not even be his defender anymore anyway by that point. I want to talk about another Celtics defender, Celtics player right now. Is it Derek White? Uh, no, it's actually Robert Williams. Oh, Robert Williams. Okay. I, I can't believe we've gone this far in the episode without talking about Rob, Robert Williams. Um, I must have brain cramps or something. <laughs> it's right here at the top of my note page. Robert Williams is basically being attacked in this series. Yes. It's fascinating, yes. right? You have you have one of the game's best rim protectors and shot blockers. You have someone who made the second team all defense, and they are trying to pull him out. If you're going to put him on Wiggins, Wiggins is going to stretch you and play outside. That's going to pull you out of the paint. And then otherwise, there's this incredible dynamic about whoever... Uh, Rob is guarding. If if we bring him up into the screening action, then Rob has to defend a high pick and roll 30 feet away. And then this creates all kinds of problems for the Celtics. It doesn't keep him low as a shot blocker. And my word, Cody, is he an incredible shot blocker when he's near the basket, just erasing everything. And then it brings him out high. So you don't want to switch because if you switch, then they're going to clear out and Curry can go to work. And if you drop, it's too much space. And if you hedge, then they're going to go um, short roll four on three behind the play. So what Boston's tried to do is, if he's out there with Al Horford, have Al Horford take it 
And then Al Horford can come up and play the high drop and he's a little more mobile and things like that. But it's just been amazing to watch. They've basically said, give me, give me Rob Williams, please, every time. That's how we're going to attack your defense in these pick and roll sets. So, yeah, I, I was going to say ultimately that his vertical defensive game, his rim protection has looked good. He's had a couple of second jump blocks that I'm just like, man, like that. I don't, I don't know how he got up there that quickly. But what about the first jump blocks? The first just amazing. I think the second jump blocks always just blow my mind. It's like, I don't know how somebody that big can get back on the ground and back up that quickly. But not only on switches, but I feel like there's been a few times where his defensive awareness seems a little bit off. Like, I feel like maybe there's like a soft double or he's stunting a little too far and especially like off Wiggins. And I think Wiggins at one point gets like a pass off off. uh Williams going to the corner and doubling Wiggins gets the pass on the wing and then Wiggins just like drives and dumps it off to Looney for a dunk and there's been a few times where just like spatially especially on the perimeter he's getting cooked in all sorts of those kinds of directions so I I don't know I don't know if it has to do with like nagging injuries he has I don't know if this is a thing that Celtics fans have been seeing all year with Rob Williams but it's really been standing out to me this series yeah and the other thing with him that goes back to our Boston on offense discussion is he's he's been such a nice vertical spacer for the Celtics throughout this run and in the playoffs. And whether it's Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, we even saw Jalen Brown in the huge comeback run at the end of game one, throw him a lob, having that ability to just turn the corner, feel help, and then quickly toss it up for a lob. Or if help comes, his work on the offensive glass with that quick jumping. I think it's added just a little extra dimension to the Boston offense. And it felt like it was missing in game two. And I kind of wonder, like, if if Rob's struggling on defense and he's struggling on offense, um, I mean, he's still a good he's still a good player. But you just kind of say, is this just not a Rob Williams series? That's the question for me. And obviously, this isn't going to be like, you know, the Celtics aren't going to go to the locker room and be like, all right, this isn't your series. You're not playing. Right, anymore. right. So I'm, exactly. I'm interested to see the adjustments they make specifically to make Rob more effective in game three. Exactly. It's the same thing with pool. It's not a pool series, but he's still got to go out there and find a way to contribute as best he can. Um, you know, just probably figuring out how to attack offensively. That's going to be his thing as the series goes forward to see if he can have an impact. Rob Williams, it's the same thing. They're, they're not going to bench him. Um, if he's healthy, of course. Yeah. But the, the question is, like, how can you find ways for him to contribute? If, if you're not familiar, by the way, with this dance of bringing him into pick and roll, it is so fascinating to watch. They will call him up, and then the Celtics will pre-switch, and they'll bring Horford up, and then they'll be like, no, 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 go run away and, and go to the corner and get far away from Rob Williams, and then we'll have Rob Williams' new man come up and set a screen. This is the kind of stuff you see teams doing to, like, Kemba Walker, uh, or Isaiah Thomas, or is like trying to isolate them, but it's for Rob Williams. I think there was a play in game one where I think Draymond and Iguodala were on the court together, and Horford was on Green, and Rob was on Iguodala, and Iguodala's yep. kind of like cutting into the paint, and he kind of like, he looks back, I can't tell if he's both looking at Rob to make sure that he's guarding him and to see what Draymond's doing, and it kind of just looks like he's like, all right, I guess I'm the one setting the screen right now, but that, that paints exactly what you're saying. Yeah, it's... uh. It's good times. It's good times. Um, anything else we want to say on this before we put game two to bed and move on to game three? Well, when I when I said I wanted to talk about a Celtics player earlier, you you thought I was saying Derek White. Did you just want to say that he's the best shot blocking guard in the league? Is that what you were going to say? 
Do we think that's the case? I think yeah, maybe he is. I don't know who would compete with him. I can't. I can't be expected to. I mean, I, Cody, I forgot to talk about the Rob Williams thing. That was the first thing I wanted to talk. Everyone who's abandoned the episode now is completely missed out on um, Rob Williams. Who is the Celtics? Okay, I can. Let me have another guess. I can do this. I can do this. If you give me seven and a half guesses, I can get the player. Um, is it Grant Williams? Is that who you want to talk about? What? Oh no, I was talking about Rob earlier. Oh, wait, we already got to talk about the player you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I wanted to talk about him. And then when I oh, said okay. I want to talk about a player, you said Derek White. And I'm like, oh, we should talk about Derek White then. Right. Okay. 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 No, I don't know. I don't know. Great. I think we should end the show. I think so, too. This sounds like a good <laughs> If you want to support um, this podcast and all things Thinking Basketball, check out patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. We have additional content. We have uh, for, the, for a little while longer, definitely we'll have that um, podcast on redoing the conference not the conference. I mean, I can't even get my own episodes right. Redoing the finals MVP. Did you listen to this episode, Yeah, Cody? it's a really good episode. I liked it a lot. I appreciate that. It's an old solo episode um, that I recorded a while ago on redoing the finals MVP. That's patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Also, remember to use the code thinkingbasketball if you do sign up at sportsbusinessclassroom.com. Uh, you'll get $300 off for whatever package you choose for Sports Business Classroom at Summer League in Las Vegas this July. Uh, that is it. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way to the end. If you did, you got the Rob Williams point, which is what we wanted to start the episode with anyway. And uh, wherever you are, I hope you're enjoying the finals and that, of course, you are having a great day. 